0: Hey everyone, Aiden here. First, a warning for those who haven't already read The Valley, the topic of today's discussion for our first Pen and the Sword book club. We're not doing a book report here, so I'm only going to give a brief synopsis for those who don't plan on reading the book, but we're also not going to have a warning for every plot point we may or may not hit in the course of our discussion. If you're interested in reading the book before hearing about it, this episode will be here well after we're done, so feel free to skip it for now and get back when you finish up. With that warning, on to the show. The Valley, written by Army veteran John Renahan, primarily occurs in a remote, unnamed valley in the Nuristan province of Afghanistan. In the beginning of the work, we meet up with a jaded young officer, Lieutenant Black, who's contemplating the end of his career in the Army. Lieutenant Black is given an order by his commander to complete what appears to be a pretty inane weapons discharge 15-6 investigation in the Valley. For those of you who aren't familiar with them, 15-6 investigations are the lowest level of a military investigation into potential wrongdoing. However, over the first half of the work, we're given small hints that maybe not everything is as it seems in the Valley, and the actions that have taken place prior to Lieutenant Black's arrival were a little bit more nefarious and far-reaching than the original scope of the investigation. I'll leave the brief synopsis there, though we'll probably hit on some of the later components of the book in the discussion itself. Joining me in discussing Lieutenant Black, the Valley, and what's actually going on there is Luke O'Brien, Kerry Morgan, and Pauline Shanks Corn. Luke is a U.S. Army officer, Carrie the author of The Road Back from Broken, and Pauline, a professor in ethics at Pacific Lutheran University. Before we get into the discussion, I'd like to give a quick shout out also to our sponsor for today's episode, The Strategy Bridge. The Strategy Bridge is an international journal focused on policy, strategy, national security, and military affairs. They have a really diverse community of readers and writers, including myself and some of our guests who are from the United States, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Europe, and Asia. They're also recently listed by the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff and the U.K. Army's professional reading list, and if they consider them must-reads, you probably should, too. Over at The Bridge, they publish both critical content for today's military defense and international relations specialists, as well as timely book reviews with emerging authors and voices in the national security space. You can find The Bridge at www.thestrategybridge.com. Check them out and become a member of the Bridge community by clicking on Join Us and subscribing to their feed. Now back to the show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today.: Thanks. So let's uh, start. I know that there are some issues uh, that I heard over the Twitter sphere about some of the specific plot points and realism of the book. Um, we can adjudicate some of those issues. Is there anyone that has some major issue with the plot point that they really just need to get off their chest before we get into the thrust of the discussion?
1: All right, I would say the the last thirty or forty pages just had me swearing out loud when I when I read them. The whole emergence of. They had this interesting plot point going of, you know, there's, he's trying to navigate the political, you know, the political landscape of the valley and everything like that. But his best friend from OCS is a super secret spy that's really trying to give him, like, a test to see if he can also become a super secret spy. And at that point, I think it just, it stretched credibility to the point where it was, it was... It was a little bit, not just even frustrating. It was, it was outrageous. And I mean, I get the, I'm, I'm a guy who likes dime store spy novels. I got that. But it's, it was one of those things. And I think we'll talk. We can talk about it as we go on. There were these wild swings in tone and in in content that I think that was indicative
0: of that. Anyone else?
2: Um, I the whole yeah. second half of the book just seemed like a weird trajectory to me so i don't necessarily have a particular plot plot point but i just found sort of the whole second half of the book to just be sort of one big stretch of a plot point but but uh, like you were saying i think it was intended it's intended to be a thriller so i think maybe that's part of what uh what he was
0: going for all right. No, those are both good points. Uh, I guess let's take both some of the core components of both those and translate it into kind of a deeper thematic discussion of the tone of the novel and then go into realism versus factual accuracy. Um, and one of the interesting things about this novel is you look at some of the, most of the texts that you hear, at least in terms of, that are getting popular coverage and particularly in the kind of literary, more literary sphere of uh, novels and there's... Um, they are more literary. They take a little bit more, look at more of the kind of inane components of combat, whether it is in terms of tempo or whether it's in terms of, you know, just the, the hassles that you have to deal with in terms of bureaucracy and things like that. And and in some ways this, this novel covers that as well. Uh, but it is unique in the regard, at least that I thought, that it takes a noir-ish tone at least when they when uh inside the valley itself and i want to know whether you guys thought that was an effective tool whether it was an interesting tool whether it's actually even you know at all it obviously plays into the actual plot of the work but carrie what did you think about the noir component of it and whether it was effective and whether it made sense for something like this
3: Well, you know, I think I thought that it was really interesting because um, it's I actually read another novel recently that also kind of had a noir feel to it, which is um, The Long Night by Jessica Scott. But I think it was really um, I thought it was effective from the standpoint of setting us up with an expectation that, you know, of what kind of story this is, that this was going to be. Um, you know, obviously like a darker look, a look at how, how things go badly, um and how people perhaps turn turn badly, you know, in circum you know, in, in the circumstances they find there's themselves. I also thought one of the things the book did really uh, I thought a good job of is in the first third of it where it really sets up this sort of you know, how droll and dreary the whole Um, existence at a forward operating base, the journey he takes from, you know, at the very beginning of the book to get there um, and just the, you know, how banal all of that existence is. And I think that that, It sets you up and you kind of start from that standpoint and getting into – then you move into this. He goes to the cop and you you get into this, you know, the darker tone. It darkens from there. I thought that that was actually really effective in setting up the story
1: that way.
0: Did anyone want to add to that?
1: I would definitely agree with that. Um, I think the advantage of – the the very beginning half or the very opening bit has some pieces that might strain your – the credulity just a little bit like the – like the violin maker who is the the uh, the the dealer of classical music, dude, just get on iTunes on the when you get back to your uh, back to your quarters, but and who's bringing their their violin making equipment. But I, I mean, even that though, I mean, I've seen some really eccentric stuff people have done and brought um, brought down range. and so that I can be like, well, okay, I get that. Like I would have said of the things I've seen, I would have said that's crazy until I saw it. Um, And so that section was the idea that he gets stuck with this at least initially is because it's a very minor issue that you do the paperwork on. It's very it's it captures what the life of an officer on a fob is like in a lot of cases. Does it really well, and the ground convoy piece I thought was 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 pretty good too because that is you know that I think people who have done this have that experience though. I mean, if you if we're talking, it's trying to capture that kind of heart of darkness feel to it, um, they kind of had a really great opening to make that journey up to the valley to to really dive into that. And while I get he had to get to the main plot, it seems like there was also a little bit of a missed opportunity there as well, because um, that's a really cool. It's a really cool motif. It's a decent chunk of Conrad's Heart of Darkness to begin with. I mean, look at Apocalypse Now. How much of the movie is them trying to get up the river to, to where Colonel Kurtz is? That journey has a lot of value in of itself, and... I get that you've got a lot of other plot points you wanna you wanna touch on, but in some ways, you I think he lost a little bit of something not delving into that a little bit more because I think there is some there is some potential for interesting uh, an interesting kind of atness not necessarily a well I guess a mood piece to a, to a lesser extent that I think would have uh, would have been a little bit would have been quite valuable.
0: And I, and I should mention before we hit too much of the heart of darkness talk, and I'm gonna say allegedly although for I I don't doubt that he's not. Uh, uh, not lying to us, but uh, apparently, uh, Renahan actually had never read Heart of Darkness before reading or before writing the reading. book. Um, which, which I didn't yes. know anyone which... didn't read Heart of Darkness, but, but I, yeah, I, I, I listened went. to the interviews. Apparently, he's he hadn't read Heart of Darkness before that. There are s- obviously significant parallels, and 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 just adding on the 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 component about um the trip up to the valley itself. I thought it was kind of an interesting play in some ways, and I'm going to hate myself for making this parallel, but I'll make it anyway. Um, It kind of, in some ways I would tie back to a very literal rendition or parallel or allegory for fog of war in some ways, which is obviously a component both in the trip itself. You kind of see this like pitch black and he can only see, you know, five feet in front of him. And then also, a lot of the time, actually spent at Vega, there's some of that same kind of component, but in a in a less literal manner. Which I thought was kind of an interesting use of um, that theme and kind of that tone that created, particularly in that particularly in the uh, trip up itself.
1: Well, I will I will correct myself in that I did snicker a little bit when he said that. Hey, I've never read Heart of Darkness, but as that settled onto me a little bit, I can almost I can actually. Believe that from the standpoint of um, concept is typified by Heart of Darkness, but I mean, what's the old saying that um, every writer is a new crater in an old volcano? I mean, to an extent, it's existed before Heart of Darkness in many different forms, and it's and it's entered the popular culture. How many movies and how many uh, plays and, and books that you read have elements of that? and i mean i think that's that's fair and i think you make a good point with the the fog of war piece in that so much of a deployment um <laughs> And your experience in a deployment it comes from those limited site pictures because it's such a pain in the ass to go outside the wire to go on patrol or meet with people. And so much of your of the deployment can uh, can kind of centralize around combat outposts or the FOB just for security reasons that you're, a lot of the deployment can end up being your view through binoculars or through a camera feed or the like. I, uh... Had a battalion commander who used to comment, and when we we're in the field training. Uh, we had a shadow feed, a UAV feed coming into our talk, and his whole thing is he just he turns to me, and apropos of nothing that what we were of what we were discussing, he goes, "Hey Luke, you've ever noticed that everything just looks evil through an ISR feed? Like regard, like we're staring at a range control vehicle, and he's like, that just looks like they're placing an IED. I know they're not, but they're there. They, but it looks like it, just you know, staring through the feed. And while he's being facetious, there's there's something to be said about that, which is. Your guard is up because there are people who are trying to kill you, and that that affects things. And because of that, your visibility of what you can see and experience and uh, and interact with, particularly in a place where there's no other technology that you can tie into, that's very true.
2: Yeah, I wonder if I could shift the discussion a little bit, because I think at the beginning of the book, I mean, one of my favorite points is when they're talking about the lieutenant colonel and how he was probably – you know, manufactured in a, in a petri dish at West Point, which I think is this great image of the contrast between him and Black, who just, who seems like this very disenchanted outsider kind of character. And so I wonder if part of the narrative, things seem somewhat clearer and uh, more under control when you're at the beginning of the journey. But then of course, as you go, on of the valley, then things get more confusing and and messier, and so it is that sort of fog of war. And where you are, and whatever technology is available, does shape, and also what's going on does shape how you're seeing things. And we do see whatever the merits or problems with Black's character. We are tr- we are seeing that process through his eyes and his experience, but I think it's really important that he sort of starts out as this cranky, uh, you know, I mean, I think Black is a great name for the character because he does seem very dark and reminded me a lot of, of Nietzsche, actually, just this sort of cranky, you know, I'm not real army, I, you know, I've had these experiences, I don't really want to do this. And then he's made to go do this thing he doesn't want to do and no one else wants him to be there and no one else wants him to do what he's doing. So I think it's an interesting way how the journey starts, the contrast between Black and, 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 the, other, and the lieutenant colonel character who just seems very, you know, he's
3: your basic, you know, squared away army kind of person. So I think yeah, that's I think an that, interesting I think that's really contrast interesting. there. Yeah. One of the throwaway lines, I don't know if anybody else caught it. This guy was a seminary dropout. He was going to go become a priest and yeah. he dropped out of seminary. And, you know, I thought that that was, you know, if there's, you know, lots of contrast between him and the lieutenant colonel, but the lieutenant colonel's guy went to West Point. So from the age of 18, he wanted to be an army officer. Presumably, with you know, doing a decent stint in the army, if not making it a career, and this this guy is like, yeah, I wanted to be a priest, but poof, I dropped out of school, <laughs> and I went in well, the army. You know, do. and, and, and you know, of, you know, it's a real foil, I think.
1: There's, well, there's definitely, and it also captures a very real, um, a very real thing I found in the army, which is. I have served with no less than two people who graduated law school and joined the Army not to be lawyers. Like so they went, ah, I did it. Then I just realized I really didn't like it and I wanted to go do something else and I wanted to be, you know, I went into it as a field artillery officer or an infantry officer or whatever else it was. Or I had a guy that was a stockbroker and he enlisted. And so it was like, that's because I wanted to do something different because I didn't really, it really didn't, you know, fit who I was. And I think... That was one thing I, I really loved was, yeah, you had that contrast of the, the, st- of the stereotypical hard-charging you know, battalion commander who has checked all the blocks, has fit the whole mold. But there's so, m- so much of the work in the Army is done by people who are like Lieutenant Black, who it's like, well, this is my next option. I'll go do it for an adventure for a few years and see where it takes me. Some stay in, but most don't. And yet they're the people who are the, the lieutenant and the captain mafia that are, that are on staffs. Or they're you know they're part of the, the tight knit groups of platoon leaders that make. I would so definitely much things, agree so that
0: there's a big contrast between the battalion commander and Lieutenant Black. I think in terms of a foil, though, uh, and this is kind of indicative. I think the battalion commander, in a lot of ways, symbolizes uh, the FOB itself, and and the tone that's created in the FOB. There's kind of a clean, sterile feel in a lot of it, whereas. I think the foil is not Lieutenant Black, but I think that uh, is it. First sergeant, I forgot what he is—staff sergeant, something—at uh, uh, the at Cop Vega. That I think that's the real foil there. Whereas you know, battalion commander, things are pretty you know hard edge, clean, sterile. You know, hit the boxes, check the marks. Um, whereas whereas The Foil is a sergeant at Vega. You know, it's, a, it's about situational awareness, you know, what, what do you need to do in the moment itself, accepting the fact that things are going to get muddy, things are going to get messy, um, at least as, as the book would have you believe. I'm not, you know, making a comment about how that actually plays out in actuality, but I think those The Foil is there. At least that's how I saw it, which kind of played into how the tone of cop- uh, versus Fob played in as well, uh, at least in my reading of it. But I wanted to get how you guys, your sense of things, and I know Carrie and I talked about this earlier, in the sense that, and I don't know if your view changed at all, Carrie, over the course of reading the rest of the book, but I just did not feel that Lieutenant Black was a compelling character uh, in any sense of the word and we are trying to debate whether that was a concerted effort created by Renahan or whether it was just some weird thing where he was trying to hit something but cl- missed the mark. Because I just felt like there was, a, there was a flat affect. And, you know, you could always make the argument that, there you know, there are some characters in the military who are, you know, just trying to get through the day. But I just felt as though it really diminished the rest of the work entirely if you were to view... Lieutenant Black is a protagonist, obviously, and I've heard some argue that there are others who are really kind of the central thrust of the the plot, but I just did it just did not resonate in any sense with me, Lieutenant Black, and any any component of his character, and any, you know, of his actions, thoughts, anything like that. I just I just felt like there is a big blank space there. You were kind of viewing it through his eyes, but there was nothing kind of behind that. Did anyone get that sense?
1: I think so, um, but I think part of it is a larger. There's a larger piece to this, uh, to the story, and that they set up a lot of stuff for not just Lieutenant Black, but well, mostly for Lieutenant Black, uh, that they they throw out there early, but then never address. Uh, there's that old saying uh Chekhov's gun, I think uh the famous Russian writer chekhov uh, had a had a saying which is if you if somebody comes on stage with a gun or mentions it or there's a gun on like a mantelpiece on the stage, you'd better address why that's there at some point, or else people are just going to say, Well, why'd you waste my time? Why is this there And there's a lot of stuff they throw out there for uh for his character, like the reason he got busted from being a platoon leader to being the s one uh, some of the relationships he had, and other stuff, uh, and they threw out a lot of stuff where you can see how that would how that would guide the character to to grow and develop but then they never address it um, they kind of let it drop or it's dismissed away very quickly like I thought like particularly in the latter half of the book where he's reminiscing back to his own battles which is presumably the reason why he got busted down or he got busted to be the um, the S1 to begin with um it was. I expected it to a certain point to come to, okay, that's why he stumbled and fell, and that's why this is like a chance at redemption for him. But instead it becomes a, a mechanism to talk about the construction of one of the cops in the valley, which, okay, yeah, I can see that happening, but you've really let a... A, a window where you can really do some character development and give insights to this character and give him like something that's sympathetic because at times they reference whatever it is he did um and you want to feel for the guy like people calling him out in the chow hall and people like running into it, the cop going hey aren't you that one guy and they never they never touch on it and i think that's it's it was a i think it was a very it was a missed opportunity that i was a little very disappointed about
3: You know, they talk about there's like, you know, two categories of fiction, and they're not mutually exclusive, but, you know, they talk about there's character-driven fiction and plot-driven fiction, and... what my feeling was, and, and Aiden, I mean, I, I think my, my my view, you know, we talked. I was about halfway through the book when we first talked about this. In terms of, I had trouble kind of connecting with Black as a protagonist, too, you know. And I wondered at the time, like, was it because this is really more plot driven fiction, or was that actually a device to sort of was was it was there an objective to, you know, make him a flat you know, flat character with flat emotions for some, you know, specific purpose. And I'm not really still sure. I think, I mean, it's tough, you know, to – this this story had a fairly complex plot. And so, I mean, you can't kind of do everything within the you know, the space of whatever, a hundred thousand words or whatever. He didn't have the room to develop it. But at least even in plot-driven fiction, you normally – connect at least with the protagonist, maybe less so with the, with the supporting characters, but you know, maybe there were, he was doing something there and I feel like maybe I, I just missed it.
2: (laughs) I, I actually found black really compelling because of his distance and flatness and disengagement in the first part of the book. And then the second part, I don't know. I think something fell apart. So maybe there's some merit to the argument that, that he was being, that that, way of portraying the character was being set up to do something else and then the plot took over the second half of the book because i actually found him and i mean it's not that i could identify with him but he was an interesting character and it did set up this he's an outsider coming to the inside group and he has to sort of win his way into their confidence and he has to figure out what's going on and he's very much set up as this sort of you know, non-traditional army guy, you know, he was in seminary. He's an outsider, and I think that's how the character was set up. So I think that perhaps some of the distance is intentional, and maybe it just it, it didn't become clear in the second half of the book what the payoff for that was or how that fed into the, to the plot or the end of the book. So, I mean, I found him really engaging the first half of the book, and then... Something happened, and it just for me, it just I lost interest in what was happening to him. So. Like I think one,
3: I think one of the more compelling parts of the book was when he first arrives at the at the cop, and he's like this, you know, like literally he got off the, you know, he got out of the the Humvee, and you know, he's immediately like, literally he's like attacked. I mean, he's a total outsider and that's, I thought that was a really effective section of the book. And I think Pauline, like what you're saying is, you know, that the distance sort of the way he was introduced with sort of a little bit of emotional distance between the reader and him, you know, I think that perhaps that was an effective setup for getting us to that point where he shows up at the cop and he's very much on the outside looking in and it, you know, you know,
0: Perhaps the thing that annoyed me was actually a really good tool. I guess. I guess the the thing that I wonder with that is, I, I definitely agree with the distance. Um, one would believe, though, that that distance creates a reliable narrator in a in a in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have in a in a plot like this. And I just never felt as though he was reliable, and I think supported by the plot itself, he wasn't a reliable narrator. Um, which I guess is perhaps an interesting kind of dichotomy to consider. I don't know whether that makes it more or less effective though. because I, 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 he, I, he definitely wasn't enough. he wasn't definitely wasn't reliable and there's but there definitely was the distance, uh, which just creates some weird uh, disconcerting tension that I I guess I haven't otherwise seen in works that are kind of similar.
1: Well, I think you have a there's a it's a high risk high reward kind of thing, um, which is an unreliable narrator can either work really really well, or it can or it can just get frustrating. So like Catcher in the Rye is the perfect like literally the high school example of what an unreliable narrator is. Right, you have a character that you have to read into and you have to engage to figure out what's true and what isn't. Uh, I'm a guy who likes reading the biographies and autobiographies of spies, and that is inherently a endeavor of an unreliable narrator because there's stuff they'll hold back and there's stuff they'll distort and that can be really engaging but if you don't do it right it becomes a distraction because uh, at a certain point and I think I think it's the difference between a good heist movie and a bad heist movie, in that there are movies that, will, or there are stories that will coax you along. You know the, the the narrator is holding something back, but you're engaged and you want to figure out. You want to figure out how they get to that certain point. But there are other times where it just becomes so unreliable that you just kind of disengage a little bit. You don't want to follow along and just go like you just basically say, "I'm going to read to the end of this book, and then at the end of the book, you'll just get around to telling me where this is going to go." And when that happens happens that's uh i think you really you really dropped the ball and i think you're right i can't make up my mind necessarily um where this book went with that uh and maybe that is a sign that he you know that that was exactly what they wanted to get across and i, I can be receptive to that but but right now i think it's definitely one of those things where i can't i can't say it one way or the other
3: you know, it's yes. almost like there's two kinds of unreliable narrators. I mean, I think there's actually more. But, what, you know, one is you have, like, people who are unreli- unreliable narrators because of perceptual things like, you know, the uh, chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because he, he suffers from a mental illness. So he's perceiving things through a, through a veil, right. That's his, that's his own, you know, you know, mental condition. And then you have like unreliable narrators who are like are withholding information from the audience or skewing the way that they're narrating these events that they're participating in. I mean, like, you know, I don't know, like Lolita, right. Uh, by Nabokov, you know, and I don't know if this, if this is more like the latter situation where like this guy knows he's in some a situation that's highly sketchy. And so the way he's narrating his own – this own story is like it, – it's he's altering it. Is he is, is it a self-conscious way of altering the story to shape the way we perceive his own actions versus the actions of other people who are also doing potentially dodgy stuff?
1: Well, he's been kicked around enough. I think he's been kicked around enough where it's one of those – it's one of those things where – and I think this is where it comes in it's very effective in that – his entire his perception of his entire army career is that he's just been smacked around and things have not gone the way they're supposed to gone for him. And so he combs at everything with the with the foreman block up covering his face. And there are a lot of people that are like that and it's not just a military thing, but that's a that's a very a very real emotional approach to things. And you run into people like that. Um, Now the question I think is open as to how effective was that at telling the story we were trying to tell. And um, that's, that's another question, but I mean, I can, I can, I can see where that mentality comes from, even though I didn't necessarily relate as well as I would have liked to the character.
0: Let's transition into kind of some of the the, the actions themselves, and and uh, I'll start with you, Pauline, because you brought it up to me earlier. We see this kind of tension between black and particularly the uh, NCOs at, at the cop, um, a duty to soldiers, other soldiers versus ethics themselves, and we kind of see in a lot of ways the the very very uh, perhaps to an extreme and. Ineffective way, although I'll leave that for you guys to decide. Um, the extremes of that uh, duty to soldier versus ethics, although less so on the ethics side, more to duty to other soldiers. Um, was there ever a point in which you kind of felt like, okay, you you had me in the the in understanding the tension that exists in the military? Uh, but was was there a point at which you were kind of just like? That you guys have gone too far. You had it. You had something going, and then uh, you went over an edge. Did that ever? that that point ever come to you in the reading?
2: Um, I don't know because it seems like the first of all, I would just, you know, clarify that you know the this trope about it's you know, duty to your soldiers versus some kind of ethical principle or ethical requirement. I mean, you have an ethical duty to your soldier, to your soldiers. And soldiers have ethical duties to one another, but then there are other ethical duties that you have. But I think this is sort of a common uh, trope or, or device that we see in, in fiction, that there's somehow a tension set up between uh, your, your duty to either your fellow soldiers or to people above or below you and some other kind of ethical obligation and it just seemed like in a way that the novel was just really carrying to an extreme that that kind of trope that there was just it seemed like there was just this very which i can understand in a sort of an outpost situation like the far it seems like the argument is the farther you get from civilization the farther you get from the fob and from the battalion commander, it seems like the obligation to the people in your group then becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and whatever other ethical obligations you have become weaker and weaker and weaker. Um, I, I do think that that was part of the, part of the story, but then I think at some point you do wonder if it's just, if it becomes a stereotype right and because you just seem to have people who are like well it's just clear we owe nothing to this outsider we owe nothing to whatever other ethical obligations we might think we have that it's literally a sense of life and death the most important ethical obligation we have is to each other and i think there is some grounding in reality to that because i expect that you feel like your life is dependent on these other people and their emotional bonds and um and you care about each other so i think there's a lot that would undergird that but i do wonder if that if you push that a bit too far i don't know if there was a particular point where I where I thought it was pushed too far. I think it was just, I think it was a stereotype that kept being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. So I think it's an interesting question about, you know, to raise that issue about, you know, is there is there kind of an absolute duty when you're that far from civilization and everything else and every other obligation essentially fades or takes second place? I mean, I think that's, if there's an ethical question, maybe that's one of the the questions that's asked. And if you go back to the heart of darkness analogy, I mean, I think that's, you know, that that's one of the things that the main character in that novel is wrestling with as well. Cause it seems like Kurt has either made up his own ethical standards or completely jettisoned those that the main character is familiar with. So I think that raises an interesting question.
0: Right. And I think if anything that kind of, uh, mitigate some of that, uh, at least, conflict. Um, when we're talking about a component of the conflict is the people themselves, it makes that a little bit easier to digest from w- w- what is really at the core of this here. And, you know, it's one thing if you're talking about in Klaus Witzian terms to, you know, coercion of the enemy as the ultimate goal of the conflict. Um, but, when it's the people that you're talking about and the ends versus the, the means here, whether it's, you know, ethical obligations or, um, you know, coercion of the enemy, uh, the ethical kind of quandary that you have in protecting uh, fellow soldiers doesn't seem as important because ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to succeed in your mission, which, um, it, which, if it's coercion of the enemy... You can the ethical kind of standards are n- not as core, um, but when you're talking about interacting with civilians and the population, uh, that that ethical obligation is core, and it can ultimately result in the success or failure of a mission, at least in the kind of grand scale of things. Um, so I guess the question is, once something ha- does happen that breaches some ethical bre- bounds. Uh, then what? Then you know, you know. It's is it kind of no, you know, crying over spilled milk or what? Uh, and I and I don't mean to be glib about it, uh, but I think you know the fact of interacting with a population makes those ethical uh, discussions more central than in a kind of other form of warfare.
1: Well, I mean, I think, <laughs> and I'm just. <laughs> to be clear here I mean just when we're talking about an insurgency I mean the the point is always still to uh, is still to coerce your enemy the only difference is the population becomes much more central because the population becomes your terrain Um, and as part of that uh, absolutely I think that I think that captures it because unlike there are ethical decisions that are going to come in no matter what you've got to go take a hill or a road junction or something like that (laughs) ethical decisions can come up in any number of ways that go along with that but they are secondary in a lot of cases to the existence of a traffic intersection or the existence of a hilltop when you come to that that pop the question of a population that you're working in literally everything that you you touch is another human being which adds that extra degree of complexity and I mean I think you're I think you're on the money with this with this with this overall question so I think the one thing that I that was a missed opportunity to discuss the, the 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 moral consideration that comes in is lieutenant Pistone was never really addressed as much as he could have been and so I think lieutenant Pistone, he's the guy who has to live with these guys day in day out he's the guy that makes those decisions but not only that but he also has that dynamic of being the new lieutenant. Like the, you can see with their interactions with Black, they're frustrated with the idea of, "Oh, here's this guy who's been in the army for you know less than a day who's coming in to tell me how to do my business." Uh, Pistone has had to live with that the whole time, and his ethical decisions have been built in that framework of trying to get across of, "Hey, battalion wants me to do this." But then I know you guys aren't 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 cool with it, so now I'm gonna make it work. Instead, you have Black who kind of parachutes into the fob, and that's his one major interaction. And so, I think you lose a lot of the nuance that would come into those kind of decisions.
3: But isn't that kind of like just a, a reflection of the story that this guy was trying to tell? I mean, it would have been a, it had had the focal point of the book been, you know. Pistone's life with, uh, with the with with the pl- with the platoon and Pistone dealing with Merrick and the other NCOs and dealing with the Joes. I mean, that would have been a that would have been a completely different story. Whereas this thing was really like, I mean, it's like you know when we we were talking, this was kind of like a this is like a military gumshoe. This is like a gumshoe in boots. And so I, I almost think it like it had to be the way that it was. But but the fact that it was that kind of story meant we just simply didn't get. Some of the development, the kind of areas that you know that we exactly. would have if it was a if it was a character driven story. I
2: think you. Could, I mean, there were. It seems like there were a few pieces where Black finds Stone's diary, and there's a few like diary entries. So it seems like you could have done more of a back and forth with. Yeah, it's driven by Black, and if it's a mystery novel, then you need some clues. And I think that's why I found the second half of the novel not compelling because the the mystery piece of it just seems to have broken down, and it wasn't a compelling after the second half, it wasn't a compelling mystery novel. It became like an action flick on some on some level. So I think for me, the second half of the novel was like a confused genre. And so if maybe they if the author had done more with um, you know Stones. Uh, diary and maybe finding pieces of it here and there, or interspersing pieces of it with things that are happening with Black as he's interacting with these NCOs. Because I do think that's that the lieutenant's absence is intentional. It's important to the story, but I think there were ways to to still have the absence, but then have you know diary or some other mechanism to sort of give us clues to keep up that the the mystery of it. I think that part just sort of for me it fell apart in the second in the second half of the book and I really like mystery novels. Um so I just like after the second part of the book I just lost maybe I lost the thread of that or there were too many other things going on. I don't know.
1: Well I think the mystery was just so over the top of he stumbles across an international heroin heroine ring that is design I think that the whole problem was it, it the well i think part of the issue comes in is the the mystery he's trying to solve is just a little bit too over the top in that he goes there to discover a warning shot. Okay, I got that. That's uh, that's that's pretty good. And discovering that this platoon had murdered a guy, that's a pretty good mystery in of itself. That would have been good to dig in. But then you dig it on, you dig further, and it's we killed this guy so that we could maintain our international drug smuggling yes. rings. Like that's that's a bit that just it it stretches the the bounds of credulity so much that you're just like okay, you know what, just come get me when you're done and tell me how this shakes out you know,
3: the heroin ring and the incredulity, he made a he made a decision to put us into the, into the point of view um, of that indigenous character in a couple of different scenes. And um, I don't, I'm not completely sure what he was trying, why he had, I don't, I don't think he had to do that. I think he could have told the same story without, you know, putting us into that person's head. But the fact that he did, I think that that was, you know, a decision that kind of took us away from other places he could have gone. I mean, you know, when you write a novel and you put it out there for traditional publishing, you basically have 100,000 words that you have to work with, and you can't go over much, <laughs> or else people say, "Whoa, it's a little too long." You know, you're, <laughs> you know, this isn't Game of Thrones. You know, so he had to make narrative choices, and and to me, I kind of wondered as I was reading, like. Why is he going there? Because I kind of want to know, like, I don't, I I, I mean, I'm interested in her, but like, I'm really interested in Merrick and these other guys, Shannon, you know, talk to me about that or talk to me, give me more about Black. Like, who is this guy? They're also
0: in such small pieces. Even, even once everything starts to come together, uh, those, those components where you saw it through the eyes of the, um, Afghan girl were so small and really, didn't give you too much extra information except confirming, hey, yeah, this did in fact happen. Uh, that that they just kind of seemed excessive uh, because they didn't they didn't they didn't give you a new perspective really. I mean, I, I guess it, by definition, they did give you a new perspective, but there wasn't any extra information there. There wasn't any uh, r- real depth besides just quite literally looking at a snapshot through someone else's perspective.
3: Yeah. And I, you know, it was interesting after I read the book, I kind of started delving into, you know, the heart of darkness element of it, you know, and then I saw like, what, you know, that he said that he had never read heart of darkness, which I thought was interesting because when I was reading and I'm like, oh, I wonder if he's doing this, you know, giving us the, these, these snippets of the, of the, of the action through the eyes of the Afghan girl as a way of m- keeping himself from, from getting into this kind of colonialist trap that, that, that you know, Joseph Conrad, you know, arguably did in Heart of Darkness, where that the, the indigenous people are shown as being like, you know, barbaric and primitive, you know, and by fleshing her out and her perspective out at least a little bit. You know, and giving her some humanity, like was he trying to avoid that trap? But then he said he didn't read Heart of Darkness, so maybe not.
1: The question is does the does the environment and the people and the human terrain he's operating in does that exist as a key component of the story, or is it merely a backdrop? In other words, those like two dimensional set pieces of the old west town uh, is that what those are there for? And so, I think even if the story had just been i'm going up to the valley to investigate an extrajudicial killing that in itself would have had such earth-shaking consequences that it would have been it would have created a lot of fodder to to explore the story then it goes that step further into pablo escobar territory um and and uh as part of that then like that never there's no discernible repercussions that i see um minus you, you know a couple of the a couple of the people involved, you know, get cut open and, and left to and left to rot. That's obviously a dramatic kind of a kind of shakeout, but it's not like you get the feeling that it was just like that. You've got a, an hour long television drama where you parachute. in I'm using this term a lot, but it seems it seems fitting. You parachute into the setting real quick. You tell your story, and then when it's done, the next week starts, and it's like it never happened. And it almost got to the point where it was so dismissively treated and discussed. And maybe because he mentioned at the end he's you know, he's gonna use the universe to create some more stories, so maybe we'll see some stuff that are associated with it. But just from reading this one novel, it just seems it didn't get the gravity and the exploration that it needed.
0: Yeah, and I should mention, so I did a bit of reading as much as I could, at least based on uh, what had come out about the work. And so it, at least ostensibly, was not Heart of Darkness-based, but it was, at least he said, kind of inspired by The Man Who Would Be King, by uh, Rudyard Kipling, um, and which makes me believe and, and I think he said this somewhere or another, is that it is in almost entirely location-based. The location is kind of the core component of the work. Um, and and I think, the, I mean, besides that, the only real parallels between uh, the man who would be king and, and the valley are kind of, there's a couple of kind of cruci- crucifixion motifs that you see with this, the sergeant and the uh, the individual that gets uh, kind of strung up in the trees before Lieutenant Black comes. But besides that, it's kind of really, it's all location-based. I think the man who would be king is Kafiristan, but that's what is now Nuristan, where the valley actually takes place in. Um, and, and looking at it through that lens, I'm still not sure that I see it. Um, I guess in some ways you do see a depth to the location itself that, uh, if you look at it in comparison to the characters, certainly there's more depth. I think, um, with Lieutenant Black, at least in my opinion, there is not, not so much depth there. It's kind of, kind of a flat affect, uh, that you don't actually see behind the mask, uh, as it were. And even with, even with the other characters, while they're kind of, they are characters in kind of the colloquial term. Uh, they don't necessarily have too much depth either. With the valley itself as a location, you do see a little more depth. Um, but I don't know. It's It never seems to be the centerpiece. Um, I just feel like there's not quite enough
3: there well i also think with the man with would-be king i mean there's clearly you know it's it's a tighter story in the sense that there's fewer characters um you know that you're following but at the, at the end of the man who would be king basically people get there are consequences to the things that the choices they made and the actions they took um whereas i i mean like what, we're, what i think um luke was saying before is that like you know At the end of this one, it's kind of like, well, these things happened, and some bad things happened to a few people, and some people died. But you know, but there's this sort of a lot of loose ends, and you know, I get leaving enough loose ends that you can pick up and write a sequel. But but it does it does it almost seems like at the end I was like, that's it. I mean, like nobody's that that's all we get. That that's that's the that's the that's the outcome and the resolution that we're entitled to at the end of this. And I was a little surprised um, because yeah, I I was sort of expecting. I mean, at the end of like a, you know, I'm not a huge you know, reader of mystery novels, but normally like horrible thing happens, someone comes to investigate, all these things happen and someone figures out who did it. And then the guy who did it either, or gal dies or, or or meets some ultimate
0: consequence. Okay, so I guess my question to follow up with that would be, uh, do would you have said the same thing if instead of this kind of... I forgot if he said where he is, but but essentially prior to leaving his deployment, where he meets up with his friend from OCS and things like that. Um, would you have said the same thing if the plot ended? Because for for a second there, I thought he was almost he was either dead or something right, right when the attack happens. And I think there's the recoilless rifle that shoots through the uh, command command structure. Would you have said the same thing if the plot ended there?
2: I think it would have been better if the plot had ended there. I mean, I think it was just the end was just very odd, and like, and like Carrie said, there was first of all there was some weird, improbable s- twists at the end, but then nothing seemed to happen, um, and so yeah, I think the question, the book didn't end where I thought it was going to end, so maybe that's part of it too about where where he chose to end the book and what what the closure looks like. I just I just found it really really odds
1: Well it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been I think the best ending if it had just ended with him getting Getting killed by a recoilless shot, and then all of the things that they've thrown out there just never get addressed. But at the same time, super secret commando man slash OCS buddy that is somehow living. He has like a he has like a penthouse apartment in the middle of uh, Kafiristan that he that he that he flits in and out of, and can like move around at will, and can and can hack a fifteen like the database that controls the fifteen six computer. Which by the way, it's not a database; it's an Excel form. So I don't think he. Can necessarily hack it um that was enough where again i just i kind of threw up my hands and went all right you know what this is just whatever it's you've i i feel like i feel like at a certain point like i was like i said at a certain point i was willing to go with it and see where it went and then at a certain point i'm just like wake me up and tell me how it ends and then at that point i'm just like i'm angry that you woke me up and told me this is how it ended
0: yeah, no. I mean, I think it, I think it kind of fits the blockbuster movie model. I don't necessarily know that it's satisfying uh, for someone looking deeper, uh, particularly kind of the the end uh, fob scene where he kind of wraps everything together and it's kind of a neat package. I mean, it's 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 convenient, but it's not necessarily um, adding to any sort of depth. Um, I guess. Uh, I wanted to hit, hit our final point of discussion in talking about uh, summing this all up and talking about realism versus factual accuracy. And, and I'll start with you, Kerry, because we once again talked about this. Um, I think it, in some specific ways, we see realism here. Uh, I think through Lieutenant Black as a character, um, through some of these other kind of components of the fog of war, moral, moral decision-making, things like that. And, but But obviously there's plenty of people including uh some people who followed along with us who took issue with facts in the plot um do you want to quickly hit on what you thought about it in terms of realism versus factual accuracy is there a difference uh you know what what should we kind of take away from here
3: yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, obviously I'm going to come at it from the point of view of, of a writer and a writer who's made decisions on you know realism versus factual accuracy. Which facts do I do I prune? Which ones do I tweak? Which ones do I just kind of give up and hang a lantern to show people? Okay, I'm skipping this whole thing so I can get to something I really want to talk about. And I so I think that there's there's facts that you change like you can you know you know, that are not a big deal, especially when you're, you are get when you're when the goal of the book is like to present to a mixed audience, military versus civilian like that, you know, is it a database or is it a, a, you know, a non-hackable Excel file? I don't think that's a big deal. Um, you know, I think there's definitely, you know, um, you know, some I'm sure there's all kinds of liberties. And I know that I saw some people on Twitter talk about, um some of those things you know you know they they might have been irritants to someone who you know well that wasn't like that at my fob or at my cop but you know i think from the standpoint of a civilian reader it's like oh uh, okay I, I can follow this along. So he didn't get so accurate and so detailed that he lost me, you know, and I think that that's a, that's a decision you make as a writer when you're writing for a mixed military civilian audience, you know, and I did that in my own book as I made a decision. I'm not going to go through UCMJ detail and waste 50 pages on that. I'm just going to skip it. May simplify something just to get to the heart of the action that I really want to focus on. So I get that, but I mean, I think, you know, then they're like, you know, especially in a plot driven story like this, like they're key events that 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 even, you know, I think even civilian readers, we were like, oh, it's a brick of heroin at a meeting with the local jefe. That seems kind of odd that someone would do that. You know, and I think that's for me as a civilian reader, I was even I was like, what? <laughs> that seems strange. Um, and and. You know, you always want as a writer. You want to be careful. You don't want to lose. You don't want to lose people in the narrative or take them out of the moment. So any details that like are unbelievable enough that people go hmm, and it and it takes them out of the moment. That's you know we try to avoid that as writers. And um, you know, so when you're skimming facts or smoothing over the edges of something complex, if you do that to keep people in the moment, that's usually good. If you tweak facts or Deviate from things which are realistic or accurate, and you do that in a way that causes the reader themselves to kind of stumble. You know that's bad. For me, the you know one of the big ones was that sort of the the moment when you know that scene where he's meeting with the chief. That was the, that was the first moment where I went really went wow.
1: So wait, are you trying to have me sell heroin or give you heroin? I'm confused because you brought some with you from home. Here's a brick we prepared earlier. Yeah,
2: I think the issue for me isn't like realism versus facts, um, is the question of, is it, you know, is there a certain narrative truth in the story? And given the story, is what's going on around the story plausible, right? Does it fit in with what's gone before? So whether the fob was actually like that or not, or if there was military terminology that was messed up or inconsistent. I mean, I think the question is, is it still, is it still a plausible narrative? Yeah. And I think as a reader, that's what I'm interested in. Cause like, you know, if you think about other genres or other things, like there's a lot of weird things like in the Indiana Jones movies or Star Wars, but within that universe, they're plausible, right? We're, we're, we're in that world. And it makes sense if you understand the logic of what's going on. And maybe some of it's kind of weird, but it seems to make sense in terms of the narrative. Some of the stuff that happened in the story, like the break of heroin, you're like, what? I mean, that doesn't even like, I mean, that doesn't make sense. Why would you, unless it comes out later, okay, this is why, and here's how it all worked out in terms of the plot, but it didn't seem to, right? There was just stuff that seemed to be in there just to be weird or to be shocking or to be, um, outrageous and didn't really have anything to do with the story and whether it made for a plausible narrative. In other words, did it all hang together at the end? And I think there were lots of things that just didn't hang. And the heroine brick was a was a huge one. You're like, what?
3: One of the things I wondered, and I actually, I, I guess I would ask you guys what you think. I mean, another thing I look for in stories, and I, again, I tend to read kind of more like character-driven stuff, you know, um, rather than like mystery novels where like, or suspense where it's really complicated plots, but is like, is, do you know, the emotions of the characters, did that emotional texture feel authentic and real? And did people react in ways that, that resonated with me or at least seemed plausible or realistic in context? And I thought for the most part, this book did, you know, felt emotional, like the emotional realism of it, for the most part felt solid. But I don't know what you guys
1: thought. I would say he hits that target. Um, you know, I think before we started, we we're talking about this a little bit, but one of the frustrating things is. Veterans are the biggest nerds on the planet when it comes to to storytelling about uh, about military experience. It's like you always have that one friend that's obsessed with the Romans or whatever it is, and you know they go to see Gladiator, and he's like, "Well, actually, that's not how those shields work." Come to my parents' basement. I have a ton, and you know you have that moment where you're like, "Okay, I can, I can, I can deal with that." And yet, you know, you see the same thing with uh, with, with di- different. Uh, elements of military storytelling. So, I mean, I work in an office full of EOD techs. And I swear, if you mention, you say, if you just even mention the word, the hurt, or the term, the name, the hurt locker, like, be careful how you start your car the next morning, because it's, it's gonna, it's, it's it's bad. And yet, here's the thing, and again, and I know in the, in the widest uh, circle of, of veterans in particular, this is gonna be a controversial statement, but... I didn't think the Hurt Locker was as bad as people made it out to be. I liked it from the standpoint that it actually... It had one or two things it really wanted to address. It wanted to address, hey, you know... uh, being deployed and going to war can be addicting for some people they can get hooked on the adrenaline and then there's real consequences to that later on for them to readjust that's valuable i can see that and while people were just like going into grand mal seizures because well you know that's not how i would defeat you know i you, know, you never go out on your own like that or as like four different people whatever else okay i got that you're missing the larger point <laughs> emotionally with some of the character interactions like everybody's had that plato- has has had that nco if you're if you've been an officer who just doesn't like officers and is especially irritated that you know it's a brand new lieutenant that has that has legal authority over them and they can't stand that and that everybody's had that and those emotional interactions and that irritation that comes from that that connected with me very truly i know and as a platoon leader had that but you've got to tie it into something bigger, and I just think that the emotional the emotional connections in a lot of cases dead on. I got that, but again, it was almost for the sake of it. It never tied it back, and that's why then those unreal moments of the brick of heroin or the Jason Bourne seven year old Afghan girl or or. Or super spy with his uh living in mud huts that just, that somehow doesn't get beheaded on on Al Jazeera like all of that it just doesn't get after what the, you know it doesn't it doesn't bring you to a point where you're like okay I've, I, you've captured something that's true to me the I mean, the, the road map might have all of the the proper the proper markings from the from the legend, but the map tells you it doesn't take you anywhere does that make sense
0: I think that does. And that's a wrap for our first episode of the Pen and the Sword Book Club. We plan on doing these on roughly a monthly basis, and to that end, the next book on our list is Tim O'Brien's If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home, which is a classic memoir of the Vietnam War. We'd also really like to hear from you if you have any questions or comments on this series. We're available at militarywritersguild at gmail.com or via Twitter at Guild. I personally read and answer your emails through those channels, so I'd really love to hear what you all think of this series and uh, the pen and the sword in general. Hopefully if you're hearing this, you've already subscribed to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, Also ratings on iTunes are what allows us to get these conversations to reach more ears past our own network. So if you enjoyed this one or past ones, it'd be amazing if you could add a rating. As always, our music was brought to you by Dexter Britton, who you can find online at dexterbritton.co.uk. Until next time, right on.